today provide you with in-depth news and expert analysis, tell you the whole story and the bigger picture, bring you the news you want to know only on today. Venezuela cuts diplomatic ties with the U.S. after the Trump administration recognizes the opposition leader. Chinese Vice President Wang Qishan calls for a joint global effort in the age of the fourth industrial revolution. Canada's ambassador to China says Huawei's Meng Wanzhou has a strong case to avoid extradition. Report says China will overtake the U.S. as the world's biggest retail market this year. You're listening to Today, a news program with a different perspective. I'm Zhao Ying. Coming up, we'll have an hour of world news and analysis. To hear this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World News Analysis. Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro says he is breaking diplomatic ties with the United States after the Trump administration recognized opposition leader Juan Guaido as the country's interim president. Speaking to his supporters outside the presidential palace in Caracas, Maduro said he would give U.S. diplomats 72 hours to leave the country. But the U.S. says the former President Maduro now lacks the authority to give that order. Seven South American nations, including Brazil, Colombia and Peru, have joined the U.S. and Canada in backing Guaido as Venezuela's president. Mexico, Bolivia and Cuba continue to support Maduro. For more on this, we are now joined on the line by Zhang Shixue, professor and director of the Center for Latin American Studies at Shanghai University. Professor Zhang, thanks for joining us. Okay, thank you. So first of all, could you walk us through how the day has unfolded between Venezuela and the United States? Well, uh, Venezuela and the U.S. Uh, have been on uh, terrible terms for, uh, for, more, for almost uh, uh, two decades. Uh, soon after Chavez came to power in 1999, uh, the U.S. was quite unhappy about the uh, uh, the policy of Chavez uh, regarding everything, particularly with the bilateral relationship uh, between the two sides. And now the current uh, um, uh, administra- uh, uh, administration of Maduro uh, has, has been on a worse and worse terms with the U.S. Uh, the U.S. has been imposing quite heavy economic sanctions sanctions and also diplomatic uh, isolation uh, against Venezuela. So who knows what will happen. Uh, uh, I'm very, very pessimistic about uh, the future of the bilateral relationship of these two countries. Well, tell us more about the man who challenged Maduro's legitimacy, Juan Guaido. Who is he? Well, he's he's quite young. about 35 or 36 years old. And uh, he is uh, considered as the, uh, uh, the so-called opposition leader. And in the past, uh, uh, several groups within the, uh, the opposition front uh, couldn't get united regarding their attitude towards uh, Chavez and also Maduro. And now, well, this uh, young Young boy has been nominated uh, with quotation marks as the uh, uh, interim uh, president of Venezuela, but uh, as you know, it's not it's not legal, it's not legitimate. So 
I don't believe that uh, it, uh, he will be uh, he will be recognized by every country in the world. And uh, look at China uh, and also Russia. Uh, these two important countries have not uh, recognized the, the so-called uh, uh, interim president of Venezuela. But he too has the backing of the U.S. and several other countries, including Canada and other some South American countries. But we all know he's not really in power at the moment, and Maduro still has the military leadership on his side. So, does Guaido have any realistic chance of challenging President Maduro and succeeding? I think uh, for the time being. Uh, this kind of deadlock uh, will continue to uh, uh, to be there. Uh, no side uh, will defeat uh, the other. Uh, now the problem is, suppose the uh, uh, the so-called diplomat of the U.S. refuse to leave within the 72 hours, then what will happen? Uh, well, there are several possibilities. So Maduro will will take some tough actions against uh, uh, the embassy of the U.S. And then the U.S. will retaliate by doing something which might cause more divisions for the bilateral relationship of the two countries. Or probably the U.S. will send military forces to Caracas to protect it's diplomat with uh, with quotation marks. So I think uh, in the next uh, one month or so, this kind of situation will be very very dangerous. Yes, actually, Trump did say that all options are on the table. So that means military intervention is also on the table. Uh, well, suppose the U.S. will really take military action against Maduro, then. Other countries in Latin America will be angry because people there have not forgotten the tragedy which took place in 1989. At that time, the U.S. sent uh, as uh, as the U.S. sent uh, a big army uh, to Panama City to uh, to capture its leader by the name Noriega, and Noriega died a few years ago in in the U.S. or uh, in, uh, in France. So, so people uh, in Latin America don't like to see this kind of military invasion again in this region. So hopefully, well, the U.S. and Venezuela and other countries in the region can find a peaceful solution mm-hmm. to this kind of deadlock. So what do you make of the different stances of different countries on this issue? We see that Russia was quick to criticize the Trump administration's move and said the situation in Venezuela amounted to a coup. But countries like Brazil, Chile, Canada and Argentina, they are joining the U.S. in supporting the opposition leader. What do you make of all this? Well, you know, uh, the basic principle of international relations is non-interference. Well, Yes, we understand that Venezuela is suffering from uh, multiple crises, economic crisis, political crisis, also diplomatic crisis and social crisis. But the U.S. should not interfere in its domestic affairs. You know, 
uh, uh, so last year, uh, people in Venezuela choose Maduro to serve one uh, one more term as their leader. So we should respect the choice of the voters in Venezuela. Now the U.S. said Maduro is not legitimate. So people don't understand why the U.S. say uh, Maduro is not a legitimate leader uh, of Venezuela. So mm-hmm. I think uh, the U.S. should deal with its own domestic problems, like the shutdown of the government, and try to stop interfering in other countries' domestic affairs. And when you say that Venezuela is suffering from multiple questions, what do you think are the root causes of the economic and political crisis in the country? Uh, first of all, we must say that uh, as a government uh, has made the wrong policy. You know, over the past one or two decades, uh, uh, both Chavez and Maduro have interfered uh, in, uh, in the economy with the role of the state and uh, neglecting the important role of the market. So, uh, so less and less investment has been made in its economy. So this is a terrible, uh, a terrible situation. And secondly, we must understand, uh, as the opposition uh, refused to cooperate with the government on every, every aspect, so there's no, political, uh, there's no political stability. And for any economy without uh, political stability, uh, foreign investors, Domestic investors cannot make investments, so the economy is going to uh, to get worse and worse. And finally, the U.S. has imposed that well severe economic sanctions against Venezuela. So all these three reasons have made the economy of Venezuela turning into a deeper crisis. Okay, thank you, Dr. Zhang Shixue, Professor and Director of the Center for Latin American Studies at Shanghai University. Coming up, Chinese Vice President Wang Qishan calls for a joint global effort in the age of the fourth industrial revolution. You're listening to Today. Stay with us. As a guest speaker with Today, I feel very much grateful for providing a chance for me to communicate to the world and China's progress and China's accomplishment and also China's rich cultural heritage and, of course, China's desire to integrate itself into the international community. I believe Today opens the window as well as builds a bridge between people in China and the world. This is today. Thanks for joining us. Chinese Vice President Wang Qishan is calling for joint efforts to strengthen the era of the fourth industrial revolution. He made the remarks during a speech at the World Economic Forum in Davos. Li Yi has more. This year's Davos Forum gathers global elites to discuss globalization 4.0, a buzzword that means a new wave of globalization in a digital world. Wang Qishan's speech calls for respect for every country's national sovereignty. It is imperative to respect national sovereignty and refrain from seeking technological hegemony, interfering in other countries' domestic affairs, and conducting, shielding, or protecting technology-enabled activities that undermine other countries' national security. 
We need to respect the independent choices of model of technology management and of public policies made by countries and their right to participate in the global technological governance system as equals. Wang calls for a balanced manner to accommodate the interests of all countries, suggesting anyone should not ask the whole world to address only the security concerns and standards of developed countries or individual countries. He proposed a further development to deal with risks and challenges brought about by new technologies. Countries need to press ahead with the structural reform, strike a right balance between equity and efficiency, adopt effective policy measures to prevent the worsening of income inequality and fend off the impact on some regions and industries caused by new technologies and market competition, so that all people stand to gain from continued development. What we need to do is to make the pie bigger while looking for ways to share it in a more equitable way. The last thing we should do is to stop making the pie and just engaging a futile debate on how to divide it. Shifting blame for one's problems onto others will not resolve the problems. While affirming the role of Western multinational corporations and financial institutes in economic globalization, Wang Qishan said China's potential can't be ignored. China has moved up from the low end to the medium and the high end of the global industrial chain. The nearly 1.4 billion Chinese who are enjoying greater prosperity have unleashed huge demand backed by purchasing power. And this has unlocked enormous market potential that no one can afford to ignore. The world's second largest economy expanded by 6.6% last year. Wang Qishan said the country's economy will continue to achieve sustainable growth despite global uncertainties. That is CRI's Li Yi reporting. For more on this, we're now joined in the studio by our senior political analyst Xu Qingzhou. Qingzhou, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. So globalization 4.0 is the buzzword for this year's Davos gathering, and Wang Qishan largely proposed a development-centered approach to deal with the challenges brought about by this round of globalization. And like we just heard, he said, the last thing we should do is to stop making the pie and just engage in a futile debate on how to divide it. What do you make of this approach put on table by China? Well, I think uh, uh, Vice President Wang is uh, trying to make a point on today's global uh, situation, uh, especially the trends against globalization, let's say. Uh, For example, the U.S. uh, since last year, early last year, launched a trade war, a global trade war against not only China, but also European Union nations, Canada, Mexico, Japan, you know, South Korea, India, Russia. Basically, every major economies are suffering from this kind of global uh, trade war. So this practice obviously is a case in point in terms of not making the pie bigger and bigger. Instead, people are Uh, basically squabbling over how to divide the pie. Uh, This is uh, uh, because, you know, this is like a waste of time, a waste of energy, because we are not growing the pie. Instead, we are focusing on the methods of who wins more or less over uh, the existing pie, the status quo. So this is not the right approach. Basically, he said, like, we should look um, beyond the immediate interests and focus on uh, further uh, the globalization or next stage of globalization, how to manage and deal with a better way uh, in terms of globalization.
Well, in re- reality, what has been done by the Chinese government to address the imbalance brought about by globalization in their own country, particularly against the backdrop of an economic slowdown? Well, look, globalization basically is affecting every country for good or bad. For example, in Western developed countries, the majority of people, let's say middle-income people and low-income people, probably they are the group of people who are very much affected by the globalization process. For example, middle-income people in the United States, they feel their living standard has remained unchanged for the past uh, 15 to 20 years, some of them probably are suffering from a lower uh, living standard. So they all point a finger at the uh, globalization process. Uh, whether that's correct or not, we would say that's really a domestic issue, an uh, internal policymaking issue. Uh, for example, in China, um, the government focuses very much on poverty relief. One of the three tasks facing the, uh, the priorities facing the Chinese government is poverty relief. Over the past 40 years, 800 million Chinese people were lifted out of poverty. Uh, So when the cake is growing bigger and bigger, for the rich people, yes, they are getting richer, they are happy. But for the poorer people, they still feel, they also feel very happy, probably happier than the rich people. Because, um, you know, when they see the change of their life or the life is getting better in such a fast speed, their happiness is equal or more uh, than the happiness index of those rich people. So in this way, in the development process, in the process of development, uh, it's easier to deal with the problem, for example, the gap between rich and poor. I think that's a very uh, precious experience uh, by the Chinese side. And Wang Qisheng called for shaping global architecture to accommodate new technologies so that all people can gain from technological innovation. Uh, there has been a lot of discussion over this. Um, so what, what kind of global architecture is needed here? I think uh, basically um, people are discussing, you know, all the theme of this uh, Davos Forum is really about uh, the so-called uh, globalization uh, 4.0, uh, which coincides with this industrialization or the fourth industrialization, which focuses on the new technologies, for example, robotics, uh, driverless cars, and AI, uh, you know, big data, uh, you know, 5G. All those new technologies are fast approaching uh, to us at the same time we don't fully understand the potential benefits as well as the potential challenges Uh, for some countries if you focus too much on the potential challenges and then uh, probably you tend to take very cautious sometimes over cautious attitudes Uh, for those who are embracing such technology you tend to be more or uh, proactive, uh, you know, policy making uh, to develop those technologies, and then there's, uh, let's say, um, uh, you know, not every nation is in uh, lockstep of uh, developing the new technologies. Uh, globally, you need a lot of discussion uh, to fully prepared for the arrival of new technologies. For example, the uh, growing use of robotics, uh, of AI technology. Uh, there's a potential challenge for human beings. That's the loss of jobs. 
what we are going to deal with this problem. Um, you know, what kind of training uh, the people need to better prepare, prepare themselves for the uh, new process of globalization or the arrival of the new technologies. So these potential challenges, I'm not sure we are fully aware of them. And I'm not sure countries, governments around the world are fully prepared for that. I think that's part of the global uh, architecture or the framework to, um, to, to welcome uh, the new technology, to welcome the uh, fourth uh, industrial revolution, let's say. But when it comes to the uh, technological, technological development in particular countries, uh, during Wang Shishan's conversation with the World Economic Forum founder, Schwab, he suggested that regulation should not overtake the, the advance of new technologies. So when it comes to the relations between technological advance and regulation, does what one suggested equal to deregulation? Um, not exactly. I think what he talked about is really, uh, say, I can give you an example for uh, big data. Uh, in European countries, they are more cautious about the protection of privacy. Uh, I think it's understandable. Uh, you know, each individual of us, we have our own privacy. We don't want our uh, privacy to be abused or misused by, uh, you know, the governments or somebody or some individual companies. Probably they are not following the law. And then uh, there's a, a strengthened version uh, for protection of personal data or online data, for example, in the European countries. And then, you know, uh, toward that, there's a, a concern uh, on the side of the United States, on the side of, uh, say, the Chinese companies, probably. They would say, if you protect, if the protection goes uh, extreme and then it's very difficult to develop the new technology uh, to make full use of the potential of big data of course you know people in other countries they have their own concern about the chinese practice uh, because in china you know uh, people seems to me at least like people don't care as much as in european countries about their personal uh, privacy and then the companies are not doing all they can to protect the privacy of the individual uh, consumers over there and then there is a potential people are uh, concerned whether that will be abused uh, by some uh, you know through some illegal means by some uh, uh, like uh, uh, you know, like uh, elements in the society, things like that. I think we need to strike a balance in terms of regulation, in terms of the advancement of new technology. Uh, if you stress too much about regulation, and then it's very difficult for the technology to advance. Uh, but if there's a lack of regulation, then there's a potential challenge to uh, the rights and the freedom uh, of the individuals of the society even to be damaged. And when it comes to the concerns over the rise of China, mainly from some Western countries, one said that one should be holistic to better understand China from the perspectives such as history, culture and philosophy. Why did the Chinese vice president emphasize this at Davos? And how would you see these elements when we try to figure out China's strategic intentions today? I think, you know, Wang Qishan's remarks reflect an experience by many Chinese people who do international exchanges, you know, in those kind of, uh, uh, like, uh, events. Uh, you often meet questions from people, uh, people from other countries, uh, you know, their misunderstanding or lack of understanding about China. 
of the Chinese practice, Chinese policy, Chinese development, and China's attitudes toward a particular issue or the global situation. Uh, and even for those uh, who are interested in understanding China, they would find it hard to understand. I think partly because the Chinese culture is very different, uh, is unique in its own way uh, compared with uh, the, the dominant uh, practice, let's say, uh, Western uh, values, West, uh, Western value system. Uh, so it's very different. Uh, but um, uh, if you understand the Chinese culture, Chinese history, and the Chinese uh, practices, uh, and then it would uh, become much easier to understand the Chinese practice. For example, uh, development. Uh, you know, Chinese leaders stress very much about development. Uh, for example, the former leader Deng Xiaoping, uh, he says basically, uh, development is everything. Uh, um, and then Chinese President Xi Jinping also at uh, a, a variety of occasions uh, stresses, stresses that the development is the key to solve all the problems. Development is the eternal theme of human society, basically. And if you look at the Chinese own history over the past 40 years, as I mentioned, like uh, 800 million people uh, getting out of poverty uh, you know, over the four decades, that's partly uh, because of the stress, because of the emphasis by the Chinese government on development. Development, uh, because development is the key theme of the nation. Uh, so that's why China achieved so much over the past 40 years from uh, you know, one of the poorest countries to become the second largest economy. In 1978, China ranked the 11th in terms of uh, the, the scale or the size of the economy or the GDP. And now uh, China is uh, second only to the United States, the second largest economy. And also, if you look at Chinese foreign policy, basically, it's also based on the Chinese culture. Uh, the, the past, uh, the culture is like a, a Mencius, one of the great figures of the Chinese history. You know, he said, uh, life is what I desire, and so is righteousness. If I cannot have them both, I would let that life go and choose righteousness. This is very different from say, the Western value system in which uh, the country interact with each other, following the principle of uh, national interests. Yes, thank you, Xu Chindur, for your insight. You're listening to Today. We'll be back in a minute. With the great efforts made by the staff today, it's become one of the great uh, platforms for policy debates and information dissemination. And I wish today have an even brighter and a greater tomorrow. As a guest speaker with today, I feel very much grateful for providing a chance for me to communicate to the world and China's progress and China's accomplishment and also China's rich cultural heritage and of course China's desire to integrate itself into the international community. I believe today opens the window as well as build a bridge between people in China and the world. Welcome back. You're listening to Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Now is Global Survey, where we look at what's happening around the world. Joining me in the studio is my colleague Patrick Flannery. We begin in Asia, where South Korea marks a win for the Me Too movement after an ex-prosecutor was sentenced to prison for sexual misconduct. 
India will have the world's fastest-growing economy this year and next year, according to a UN report. In Oceania, Australian Foreign Minister says there is no evidence to support that the detention of a writer in China is linked to the recent arrests of two Canadians. In the Australian Open, tennis star Serena Williams lost to Carolina Pliskova after rolling an ankle. In Africa, thousands of Nigerian refugees are fleeing to Chad Republic to escape violence. The UN says, and across the continent, more refugees are illegally being held in Libya, one of the world's most dangerous places for migrants, according to Doctors Without Borders. Turning to the Middle East, the mastermind behind the deadliest attack on Afghanistan's intelligence agency was killed in an airstrike that also killed civilians. Iran arrested 7,000 dissidents last year in a crackdown that, in what Amnesty International said led to protester deaths. In Europe, Russian officials are showing off a cruise missile, suggesting that the weapon does not violate a nuclear arms deal. Pope Francis, traveling to Central America, says hostility towards immigrants is driven by irrational fear. In Latin America, Mexico will not accept the return of asylum seekers facing a threat back home, according to the foreign ministry. An American missionary in Brazil has exposed an indigenous tribe to a potentially fatal disease. The government says. Finally, today in North America, a record number of Americans say climate change is real, according to an Ipsos poll, with 73% acknowledging global warming. Canada offers the best quality of life in the world, according to the U.S. News and World Report, which ranks the U.S. number eight for the second straight year. Thank you, Patrick. That's the global headline survey for today. Canada's ambassador to China says there is a strong case against extraditing Huawei executive Meng Wanzhou to the United States. In a news conference in Canada, Ambassador John McCallum said the defense could look at potential interference comments by U.S. President Donald Trump and the fact that Canada didn't sign on to Iran sanctions, which are central to the charges she faces. In response, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said Canada is a country of the rule of law, and his government will make sure that it's pr- properly and fully followed. He added that means Meng has a right to put together a strong defense. For more on this, my colleague Jing Hun earlier had a talk with Victor Gao, current affairs commentator. First of all, what do you make of the Canadian ambassador's latest comments? What do you think might be his intention in saying so? Thank you very much for having me. Let's start with a very basic point: the recent downturn in China-Canada relations was triggered by the Canadian government by arresting Madame Meng Wanzhou while in transit in the、uh, Vancouver airport, and the Chinese government and the Chinese people have demanded the release of Madame Meng Wanzhou.、Uh, something needs to be done by Canada, one way or another. Otherwise, there will be very serious consequences suffered in China-Canadian relations. I think the Canadian government probably wanted to、uh, start to do the right thing, and they believe it's a very complicated、uh, situation. They do not have an easy solution, and it will take the two to tangle. And I hope Canada and China can enter into very intimate discussions with each other to figure out what's the best way. To deal with this very complicated, highly sensitive situation, and I hope the Canadian side is making the right first step in the right direction.、Mm. So some critics say the the ambassador's comments here are equal to offering legal advices to Madame Mum 
It undermines Canadians' judicial independence, especially Canadians' opposition Tory party.、Uh, some members they are accusing the ambassador of possible political interference. Do you think that's really the case here? No, I think、uh, the whole situation is in itself a political、uh, disaster. It's highly politically motivated, and I think both the U.S. authority and the Canadian authority are guilty of this political plot against Madame Meng Wanzhou and Huawei. So let's really face the reality. Let's deal with the situation as it is. Don't forget that the whole situation involving the arrest of Meng Wanzhou and the attempted extradition of Meng Wanzhou. Is from the Chinese perspective a politically motivated situation, and that's why the Chinese government and the Chinese people demand the immediate release of Madam Wanzhou by the Canadian authority. This is the bottom line from the Chinese perspective.、Mm, so, like you said earlier,、uh, hopefully both China and Canada could seek. A positive step forward to resolve this issue. So, do you feel there is a, a a fundamental change of attitudes with the Canadian government?、Uh, I personally do not see a real hard evidence of Canada moving in that direction. But I、mm. hope they will do the right thing. They will realize the stupidity and the folly of having Madam Meng Wanzhou arrested at the request of the United States. Uh, therefore, hopefully, the Canadian authority will take care and take into consideration the fundamental interests of the Canadian people as a whole, and doing the right thing by freeing Madame Meng Wanzhou as soon as possible, rather、mm. than waiting until they get the request by the U.S.、Uh, authorities for the extradition of Meng Wanzhou to the United States. Mm, you talk about the、uh, fundamental interests of the Canadian people. So, what exactly are those fundamental interests? Now, first of all,、uh, the Canadian side has insisted that Canada is a country of rule of law. That's fine. Rule of law is always important. But do they really think the U.S. side is doing what is required by the rule of law? Even President Donald Trump claims that he can actually get some mileage. Uh, in the China-U.S. trade war, by having、uh, Madam Moon to arrested or eventually dealt with otherwise as a chip in the China-U.S. trade war, therefore, it's not a rule of law situation. It is a political persecution of Huawei as a company, and it's a political persecution of Madam Moon Wanzhou、uh, as a person. So the Canadian side really need to realize that they may actually have been played with by the U.S. authorities, and they need to really keep in their mind the fundamental interest of China-Canadian friendship, and they also need to care about the Canadian nationals' interest in China, either when they are working or touring China or otherwise. So I believe if China. Canadian relations can be restored back to normalcy. Everyone in China and in Canada will benefit from that. Otherwise, the China-Canadian relations will be poisoned, and there will be further bad consequences. Eventually, the Canadian people may suffer as a consequence. 
So um, this uh, Canadian ambassador, he 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 also says the United States could make a deal with China in which it would no longer seek seek Madame Mum's um, extradition to the United States. And if that happens, he hopes the deal could also include China's release of the two detained Canadians. Is that likely? Uh, I would call the whole situation involving uh, Madame Meng Wanzhou as a tale involving three countries. That is China, Canada. And the United States. Right now, the Canadians had Madame Mouanjo arrested, and they still have Mouanjo uh, highly uh, restrained in Canada. So China, as a matter of first importance, need to deal with Canada as it is and demand the release of Madame Mouanjo. Then, for example, when the United States try to extradite, especially if they, and I hope they would ever be able to do that, have custody of Madame Mouanjo. Then China will definitely deal more squarely with the U.S. authorities. But whatever the case, right now I think the focus for China to do is to demand that Canada release uh, Madam Meng Wanzhou as soon as possible, rather than waiting until the Canadian side uh, extradites Meng Wanzhou to the United States. China will need to deal with the United States in due course. But right now the burden falls on Canada. To do the right thing and release Meng Wanzhou.、Mm, so let's maybe suppose that if the United States was to to finally officially go ahead with this、um, extradition process, of course, like like you suggested, this will do,、uh, do a lot of harm to Canada. But how how could that kind of scenario affect the the trade negotiation going on between the United States and China? China-U.S. relations are very complicated, and right now are at a very important and, I would say, dangerous、uh, turning point. And the、uh, attempted extradition of Madame Mouanjou is one of the many things which has a bearing on China-U.S. relations and the course of its future development.、Uh, on the one hand, I need, I think China will. Uh, look at the totality of the situation between China and the United States. On the other hand, China need to come up with a very well tailor-made、uh, attempt to deal with the attempted extradition of Meng Wanzhou by the U.S. authorities. And we do not want to confuse the two things together. But at least we can say very fairly that what the United States is doing against Meng Wanzhou is a poison. In the relations between China and the United States, and eventually, I think the Chinese people's、uh, unhappiness with what the U.S. authorities doing will further increase, and it will really make China-U.S. relations more estranged in the days and months and years to come. Eventually, the United States is not going to benefit from this further estrangement of relations between the two largest economies in the world. That's Victor Gao, current affairs commentator, speaking with my colleague Jing Hun. Coming up, reports say China will overtake the U.S. as the world's biggest retail market this year. You're listening to today. I'm Zhao Ying. Stay with us. Hi, this is Einar Changan. The Today Show brings expert local and international perspectives on China's economic and business issues. Having been in law, government, and finance in the United States, I find China's economic and political evolution fascinating, and hope you do also. Thank you for listening.
Welcome back. A new report says China is expected to top the U.S. as the world's largest retail market this year. Retail sales in China are forecast to grow 7.5 percent to 5.6 trillion U.S. dollars in 2019, while the U.S. retail sales are projected to increase 3.3 percent to 5.5 trillion U.S. dollars. The report by research firm eMarketer says the sale boom is a result of China's rising incomes and thriving e-commerce, which accounts for almost one fifth of the country's total retail sales in 2018. For more on this, my colleague Zhao Yan earlier talked to Wang Dan, analyst of the Economist Intelligence Unit, and David Yu, professor of finance at New York University, Shanghai. The research firm eMarketer says、uh, China's economy may be slowing down, but the country is still set to eclipse the United States as the world's top retail market for the first time this year. So, what's your observation? Will this happen? I think this would happen. Although the consumer market has been weak in 2018, and we anticipate this weakness will last until 2020,、um, but overall. Just think about the sheer size of China's urbanization, and those people who have just moved from the rural area to cities, and those who just become middle class. And that's why we have seen pretty strong growth, actually, in all other items other than cars. So, David, do you agree with Dan? Or besides the urbanization process, what are the you know main factors behind it? Yeah, I, I think there the U.S.、Uh, the China will、uh, continue to、uh, will con-、uh, surpass、uh, the U.S. in terms of the world's、uh, top retail market. I think this is an issue of uh, a relative uh, uh, growth rates.、Uh, I think that while it is slowing down, it's still、uh, it's still in a positive trend. Uh, in a longer、uh, scheme, especially compared to what's happening in the U.S. with a with a, a lot of political、uh, and geographical uh, 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 instability. And so, David,、mm-hmm. as we know, in recent years, consumers in China have experienced the rising incomes and catapulting millions into the new middle class. And the result is, of course, a marked rise in purchasing power and average spending、uh, per person. But do you think this trend? Will continue.、Uh, I think it definitely will. I think the first off, you got to、uh, understand、uh, the definition of middle class.、Uh, I think the Chinese middle class is defined、uh, different than、uh, the U.S. middle class in terms of of、uh, income that would would. Uh, it, uh, enable those people to be in them.、Uh, from this,、uh, it, it is、uh, lower than、uh, than in the U.S.、Uh, what is consider- normally considered middle class.、Uh, but I think the really what, what's interesting here is it's about uh, uh, disposable income and how、uh, these new、uh, this quote unquote、uh, middle class will will use this、uh, disposable income whether for consumption or other purposes. So then, what do you think is the difference between the Chinese、uh, middle class and the U.S. middle class, and、uh, the Chinese and the U.S. consumers? I think the biggest difference is definitely in terms of income level.、Um, the amount of stuff that U.S. consumer can buy as a middle class is way more than what China's、uh, middle class can do.、Um, but overall, in terms of their importance in the society and their proportion、uh, to the total retail market. That's quite similar from a Chinese middle、uh, middle class point of view. I think it's if you're looking at a from a much lower base、uh, to begin with. So the growth、uh, point of view, it's it's, it's much uh, sharper uh, growth. But also on the fact that、uh, if you think about it, if people are are rising from、uh, from a poorer or lower、uh, per capita 
basis, you're you're looking at much more uh, more fundamental type of uh, non-discretionary spending versus uh, in the U.S. It's it's been uh, it's been much more stable and mature from that point of view. So the types of uh, consumption will be will be different. And David, for retail sales, China's biggest uh, e-commerce companies, Alibaba and JD, have played a key role in the industry's uh, explosive roles. Uh, more than 35 percent, or almost two trillion U.S. dollars of China's uh, retail spending, is expected to take place online this year. So why does e-coms play such a big proportion of the retail in China? And in the U.S., it's only account for 11 percent. I think this is a it's a structural uh, difference, uh, and this mostly uh, points to the uh, transportation uh, uh, infrastructure here in China, especially with the uh, explosion of the courier services like Xunfeng, etc., and the proliferation of, of, of and convenience of such. Not only that, but the, the average cost to deliver these packages、uh, are quite low compared to in the U.S.、Uh, something similar,、uh, and this has really fueled,、uh, in conjunction with the uh, e-commerce uh, uh, outlets, to really、uh, prop up the growth on that aspect. So then, why do you think does the、uh, e-commerce play such a big role in the retails in China? So I largely agree with David.、Um, in my head, the most important reason is actually, sadly, it's still a cheap labor story. Uh, it's still too cheap for China to have this express delivery overnight、uh, with very little cost, and this cannot be achieved in U.S. anywhere in the U.S. And on top of that, the urban planning in many Chinese cities are quite、uh, traveling unfriendly. So if、uh, I have to travel so long and almost rent a car to go there. Then I probably just order things online. And David, so from last year, we have a lot of discussions here in China about、uh, the consumption. So is it the、uh, consumption upgrade, downgrade, or diversification? The consumption is definitely、uh, diversifying. And、uh, parts,、uh, while you have folks who are just really entering、uh, this consumption uh, uh, state, uh, there's the, uh, the newer uh, the, the, the some parts. Segments of the of the population have already has been used to this, so therefore it's, it's been much more mature. And you see this in the types of products that are being consumed,、um, and also what what、uh, the people are buying online, for example, whether it's more、uh, it's more、uh, impulse purchases or much more、uh, staple type purchases. Which is very high compared to those in, in, in the U.S. And then, so actually, Apple alarmed the investors earlier this month by warning that、uh, its sales in China were lower than anticipated. And also, some analysts say spending on products like、uh, cosmetics and jewelry is suffering as consumers feel the pinch from the cooling growth in the real estate market and the rising debt. So. Have the、uh, consumers already felt the effects of the economic slowdown?、Uh, there was a book I read a while back called "Just、oh. for Economics." It's an old book, and it says that in an economic downturn like this,、uh, usually three things:、uh, the retail sales will actually go up, and they are lipsticks, romantic novels, and chocolate. <laughs> so now I think about it, I did spend more on all those three things last year, uh, uh, almost like subconsciously. But if I look closely at my spending、uh, over this period of time,、mm. uh, especially online spending,、uh, a lot of the Taobao、uh, smaller Taobao shops I have saved in my folder、uh, went out of business.、Uh, mostly in dog food, small gadget stores, clothing stores, they were just gone within one year. 
and also the dry cleaning guy that usually pick up uh, my clothes uh, weekly at the door. They make less frequent trips now, which actually, in my opinion, shows a slowing down in business activity as well.、Mm. And then, so when we talk about the main group of consumers here in China, of course, we're always、uh, talking about those、uh, middle class people, three hundred to four hundred million、uh, middle class people here in China. But uh, uh, some uh, analysts also talking about the Z generation. They say、uh, this. Generation of the、uh, youngsters, they are、uh, very strong consumers because they、uh, they are carefree. They can spend every penny they have. So, is that a good thing or bad thing for China? Z generation,、um, they really do not like. I like to save. I know a lot of them, and、mm. I work with a lot of them. They、mm. love spending every penny they have, and they love to borrow.、Um, but the total income they have is actually not that high. And especially when they're at the st-、uh, earlier stage of their career, so the main consumption is still from the middle class because they still they have those robust demand, as、uh, so-called like strong as steel on education, on family, on medical care. That's Wang Dan, analyst of Economist Intelligence Unit, and David Yu, professor of finance at New York's University Shanghai, speaking with my colleague Zhao Yan. Let's take a short break here. Coming up for some lighter news stories that we've been following. You're listening to today. Stay with us. Ever worry that you'll miss out on breaking events? Tune in to today to get the latest news and analysis on the important stories in China and around the globe. Today, illuminating the news that matters to you. Hello, this is Michael Zhang. Greetings from Los Angeles of the Golden State of California. Thank you today for making me part of your team. I truly enjoy the debates we had, and look forward to many more in the years to come. You're listening to today. I'm Zhao Ying. Now joining us for other news is Patrick Flannery. Well, it's been the most active week ever for gene editing news. The other night on the show, we talked about the Chinese scientist fired from his university after gene editing the world's first babies. The scientist community agreed that experiment was unethical, if not illegal. Today, we're talking about the gene editing of animals, specifically the cloning of monkeys and chickens, and what that all means for public health. Chinese scientists have cloned five monkeys after editing genes to induce me- mental illness, and at the same time, British scientists are about to hatch chickens designed to resist the flu in hopes of preventing the next deadly pandemic. So, what are the major differences in the purpose for cloning monkeys versus cloning chickens? We'll start with the monkeys. China is the only country with the technology to clone one. They cloned five recently from a gene-edited monkey born with genes edited to cause mental illness. I know it's a lot to keep straight, but for the first time, what that means is the scientists can test drugs that might treat conditions we, as people, struggle with. Now, for the chickens, the scientists want to prevent another flu outbreak, so they're trying to create chickens that aren't able to get the flu. If scientists are able to keep the virus from infecting the chickens, they claim they would stop the next pandemic. They plan to hatch the chicks in Scotland later this year, and you'll recall that's the same place where, in the 90s, scientists first cloned a sheep. 
So we know about the ethical breach regarding the gene editing of human babies, but what about for animals, and why not use rats for research? Yeah, in the case of the chickens, the thinking is this: research could save a huge population of people. Remember H1N1? That was about ten years ago, and it killed half a million people around the world. So making chickens flu resistant would potentially confront that kind of crisis. Now, why not experiment on mice? Scientists say they're just too different from people in terms of brain structure. Cloned monkeys, however, are much closer to people physiologically, and cloning the monkeys may reduce the number needed for testing. So cloned monkeys are not counted as animals. Ugh, I, it's that's a scientific uh, <laughs> gray area, if you will.、Uh, a monkey is a monkey is a monkey, right? Cloned、okay. or not? Yeah, I kind of agree. Let's move on to our next topic. Yeah, well, Cambodia is outdoing the rest of the world in some big ways. Nowhere else in the world is there a longer dragon boat, a longer scarf, or a heavier rice cake. Cambodia is setting world records, and nobody is prouder than the prime minister, who incidentally is the world's longest-serving prime minister, Hun Sen. Wants to get people excited about the Cambodian People's Party, specifically young people. He believes he could extend his time in office if he can just reach out to younger voters. So, could you tell us more about these records that Cambodia has been setting recently? The record for dragon boat length was just certified by Guinness World Records. It's as long as the Statue of Liberty is tall, so very long. And in November, it took 179 oarsmen to row it along the Mekong ri- River. The first record Cambodia set was about five years ago. That was for a nine thousand pound sticky rice cake. Not long after, the country featured the longest ever performance of Madison dancing. They got more than two thousand people participating in that. Another world record. And then there was the world's longest scarf ever knitted, measuring longer than a kilometer, and it took about six months to make. And what does the prime minister hope to achieve with younger people as Cambodia continues to set world records? Well, he wants the support of Cambodia's youth for one reason: his leadership is is aging now, so staying relevant with what will be the youngest voter voting block is pretty important right now. And in a recent speech, the prime minister defended these world records and pursuing them as vital to promoting Cambodia at home and abroad. As he puts it, it's for our flag, and there is only one Cambodian flag. So, is it working? Are are these Cambodia records resonating with the, the youngest? We'll have to see. Can these achievements bring people together in solidarity in a place where the prime minister has jailed a lot of people who disagree with him? We'll have to see. He won a landslide re-election victory last year, though he has been known for cracking down on those who oppose him. Thank you, Patrick. That's all the time we have for this edition of today. A quick recap of today's headlines: Venezuela cuts diplomatic ties with the U.S. after the Trump administration recognizes the opposition leader. Chinese Vice President Wang Qishan calls for a joint global effort in the age of the fourth industrial revolution. Canada's ambassador to China says Huawei's Meng Wanzhou has a strong case to avoid extradition, and report says China will overtake the U.S. as the world's biggest retail market this year. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching "World News Analysis." The program engineer of this episode is Yaqing. I'm Zhao Ying. Thank you so much for listening.